The Bible reading is from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, By what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you uh, this morning for your word. We thank you for its truth. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, as we come to it, as we uh, long to sit under it and to be shaped by it here today, uh, we pray very much that you would fulfill the very promises that you have made in your word. Uh, we trust that it is powerful, 
uh, that it cuts into the very heart of us and exposes us and convicts us. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that you would indeed bring new life, that you would bring uh, dry bones to life uh, this morning. Uh, if we have come spiritually dry this morning, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the, the joy and the hope of the gospel uh, as you've given it to us in your word. Uh, Lord, you promise that your word will never return to you void. We pray that you would fulfill that promise here this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, uh, we pray uh, that you would work uh, among us mightily and show us the glory of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Friends, will you please be seated? And as you do, uh, do keep your bulletins, your Bibles open to uh, Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, which is where we will be in our study of God's Word here today. Um, For those of you who uh, sometimes uh, worry that my uh, sermons seem to be getting longer over the years while I'm here, uh, I just want to say in my defense that I've come nowhere near the longest sermon that has ever been preached. Uh, That particular distinction belongs to a pastor in Florida uh, by the name of Zach Zender, uh, who set the Guinness World Record for the longest sermon ever preached, Coming in at a sermon length of, wait for it, 53 hours and 18 minutes. Now, uh, to be fair, the reason for him doing this uh, was to raise money for a particular mercy ministry uh, that uh, him and his church were supporting there in the area. And and it worked. He ended up raising more than $100,000 for this particular ministry as people Uh, contributed money to have him preach that long. Uh, Though as one pastor quipped, usually it seems in his church people would be more willing to pay money for him to preach shorter sermons, uh, not to preach longer sermons, but not in this case. Uh, I don't know what you'd be willing to pay for when it comes to the preaching of God's word. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to preach anywhere near uh, 53 hours this morning. In fact, I may preach a little bit shorter this morning, so we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I'll tell you what that is in a little bit. But maybe it does raise the important question for us, why do we focus so much on preaching in this church? Uh, Why is there such an emphasis, not just in the pulpit even, but also in our community groups and in our our discipleship work and with our our children and uh, on on teaching the word of God and, and spending time in his word and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ as we do so? I mean, do we really need to have that much emphasis on what we might call a mission of proclamation? And the short answer is yes, we do, Uh, that one of the primary ways we understand the work that the Lord has given us to do here as a church is to actually open the Bible and proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, also in accordance with the scriptures. That is our mission. Uh, We have a mission of proclamation. Now, if this is your first time with us here at Christ Church, uh, welcome. We're very glad to have you with us here today, uh, because what we're doing, as Mark mentioned at the beginning of our service, uh, what we're doing over the month of January is we are trying to celebrate and give thanks uh, to God that he has given this church uh, 20 years of gospel ministry here uh, in New York City, proclaiming the word of God. And so uh, we're taking this month to, one, remind ourselves uh, of what God has done among us and to give thanks to him for that. Uh, and as Mark said, we're going to have a time of, of prayer following the sermon today, in which we're going to invite you to pray and to give thanks and to, and to celebrate what God has done. So we want to do that this month, but two, we also want to remind ourselves of what we're to be about as a church as we look forward to, Lord willing, another 20 years of gospel-centered, Bible-driven ministry here 
in New York City. And so to help us do that, we're spending some time this month in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is all about God's mission to establish churches through the Holy Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we then today study the book of Acts, we get to see what it is that God cares about and what it is that God intends for his church in this world, and thus what it is that we should care about as a church as well. And so last week we focused on Acts chapter 1 and Jesus' promise to pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people so that they would be able to go and proclaim the name of Jesus. And then that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2 with the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and he empowers Peter to uh, preach this remarkable sermon through which the Lord convicts and converts thousands of people. And it's that very emphasis on preaching and proclamation that's at the heart of this passage we're looking at today from Acts 4. So, again, you want to have your, your bulletins open, your Bibles open to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. Now, uh, many times, uh, not always, but many times, you can figure out the point of a particular passage by noting words that are used repeatedly. And if you look at Acts chapter 4, you can see that there, there are particularly some words that are repeated here. Uh, you, have, you find words that are having to do with speech and words having to do with boldness. So two words that are repeated frequently here in Acts 4. Words having to do with speech and then specifically the word boldness. So uh, in verse 2, uh, Peter is preaching and he's proclaiming. Uh, the middle section, verses 8 to 12, is the actual speech that Peter gives. Uh, then in verse 13, Peter and John uh, are noted for their boldness. Uh, we see again the references to speaking and teaching in verses 18 and 20. And then at the end of the passage, uh, the people pray that they might be able to continue to speak with boldness, and they do. And so the focus of the passage is that. It's speaking the word of God about Jesus with boldness. Now, <clears throat> we're kind of picking up in the story, uh, middle of the story here, because back in Acts chapter 3 is the account of a man who had been crippled from birth, but who had been healed by God through Peter and John. And so uh, that's the man who's regularly referred to here in this passage. Uh, for example, verse 22, uh, the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Okay, so Peter and John, they, they, they healed this man who hadn't been able to walk for his whole life, 40 years of pain and suffering. So that's the man that's referred to here uh, in this passage. Uh, Peter and John, they, they, they heal him in the name of Jesus. They explain how that healing points specifically to the truth about Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. Because as they begin speaking to the people, uh, what they begin to encounter now for the first time is real resistance to the message of the gospel. Uh, you can see in verse 2, that the religious leaders are greatly annoyed. Right? Why? Because Peter and John are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And yet, despite some of the resistance they're facing, uh, nonetheless, God is doing some remarkable things here through the proclamation of his word. And so, despite the fact of verse 3, that Peter and John are arrested and thrown in jail, look at verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Friends, that's how the early church grew. <clears throat> it didn't grow through the, uh, through the spread of some, some clever marketing technique. Uh, it didn't spread through military might. It didn't spread through any other human means. No, it grew because the early Christians, empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
faithfully and persistently proclaimed the good news about Jesus no matter the opposition they faced. And that's how people came to saving faith. It was through hearing the word of Christ. And listen, that's still how people come to saving faith even today. Uh, it's how churches are formed today. And that includes this church as well, Christ Church. Uh, that's how this local church came into existence. It came into existence uh, through a ministry in which the word of God was faithfully proclaimed. Uh, when I first uh, joined the pastoral uh, staff team here at Christ Church, I had the privilege of being able to serve uh, with the planting pastor of this church for a couple of years. And when I joined him on staff, uh, that's what this church was all about. Uh, this church was all about opening up the Bible and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the word of God. The church was built on that proclamation. That's what drew me to the church in the first place. Uh, my wife and I and our children, we were living uh, in the northern UK. We were looking to come back to the U.S. where our family is. Uh, and we didn't know where we would be, and the Lord led us here. And the thing that drew us here was not, not New York City. We didn't move here because this is New York City. We moved here because of Christ Church. Uh, we moved here because uh, this church was built on a proclamation of the word of God. So, for example, if you look in your bulletins on page 14... Uh, every week this month, we're printing in our bulletin some of the, the summary vision and mission statements that we use there. And you can see some of those statements there on page 14. Uh, so taking the very words of Scripture, we understand our mission to be one of making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. That comes straight from the Great Commission. But then notice particularly the method by which we understand how we're called to fulfill this mission. It's to touch and transform lives through the plain message of God's word, the Bible, letting the word of God do the work of God by the power of the spirit of God. We do this formally on Sundays in the context of our public gatherings. We do this less formally in small groups or individual discussion. And then specifically, the message we proclaim is not first and foremost about morality, but Christ-centered transformation, a whole new way of life with a new focus of worship. And friends, it's that method and that message that must continue to be at the heart of what we do here as a church. And so as we look at Acts chapter 4 this morning, a good question for us to ask is, well, what does Acts 4 teach us about the early church's mission of proclamation? And what does a mission of proclamation look like? What can we learn and apply here from this passage? Well, I think one thing we have to notice here is how clearly the focus of their proclamation was on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and thus the resulting salvation that only Jesus can give. Uh, I've already mentioned in verse 2 how they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. But then if you also look at Peter's more lengthy speech in verse 8, uh, his focus there is very clearly and exclusively on the truth about Jesus. So verse 7, the religious leaders want to know by what power or what name they did this healing of the crippled man. And here's Peter's response, beginning at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter there, the, the good preacher that he is, he essentially gives a three-point sermon. 
Uh, First, this man has been healed by Jesus, he says. Uh, Second, Jesus is the crucified and risen one. Third, Jesus is the cornerstone. That's a reference to Psalm 118. Jesus is that, that foundational stone on which everything in life depends. And then Peter, at the end of his sermon... Uh, He gives his closing exhortation and invitation. That's verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, That's that's a call to action. I often tell uh, young guys that if you're going to preach a sermon, you're not going to have a sermon that's fully preached unless you call people to action at the end. Uh, John Stott used to say, no summons, no sermon. Well, this is Peter's sermon. This is his summon here at the end of his sermon. You must believe. There's no other way to be saved. Jesus alone. And so the focus of the message here uh, is very clearly on Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' life. It's Jesus' death. It's Jesus' resurrection. And then the the resulting salvation that's offered to sinners like us in the name of Jesus. Friends, understand that churches, they they lose their focus all the time. Uh, Churches lose their focus and they start to talk about all sorts of other things instead of focusing on the one thing that really matters, and that's this good news. Jesus was crucified for us. He didn't deserve it. Uh, His life was righteous and perfect, and yet willingly, in accordance with the Father's plan, he was crucified for us and for our sins so that we could be saved from sin and from the judgment of God. And then God raised him from the dead. Jesus is now alive. He he now reigns as the king. And therefore, if we put our faith in him and what he's done for us, we too will be resurrected unto eternal life with God. That's what we're called to proclaim. Okay, so let's not deviate from that message or get distracted by other messages. Second, we can also learn from this chapter about the way they proclaim the truth about Jesus. Again, they did it with boldness. Uh, do notice just how intimidating of a situation this really was. Uh, th- their lives are being threatened. And you really have the whole religious establishment threatening Peter and John here. Uh, verse 1, you have the priests, you have the captain of the temple, that is the temple police. You have the Sadducees, who were uh, significant, powerful leaders within first century Judaism who didn't like to have their authority undermined. Uh, They were also people who didn't believe in any resurrection, which is probably part of the reason they're greatly annoyed with Peter and John. And then not only that, but after Peter and John are thrown in prison, you also have the elders and the scribes who join in for the interrogation. Uh, The scribes were the the religious scholars of the day. And you have the former high priest, Annas, and the current high priest, Caiaphas, also present. Okay, so you you have the full range of authority represented here interrogating Peter and John. I mean, it would have been an incredibly intimidating situation. And yet Peter and John, they they, they don't shy away from the gospel message. They don't swallow the message in any way. I mean, let's just be clear about how bold of a statement verse 12 really is. There is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of your sin. He's the only way you can be saved from the eternal consequences of your sin. Now, I don't have to tell you, you know, that's not an easy message in our culture. I mean, this is where Christianity gets really controversial. Because by saying that, in that context, Peter's directly saying that those religious leaders are wrong. Now, he's not doing it in a belligerent way. He's not doing it in a a disrespectful way. But he's clear about it. They're they're wrong. 
He's saying you, you think you know God, but you don't. You think you're going to be saved, but you're not. Jesus is the only way, and you need him, because you must be saved. Salvation is a necessity. Unless you're saved, there will be dire consequences. That's the whole point of salvation. Jesus saves us from an eternity of death and judgment. Only Jesus can do that. And no doubt, we all have friends and neighbors who would respond to that by saying, how can you be so arrogant to say something like that? How can you say that there's only one way to be saved and that everybody else is wrong? And of course, in one sense, I think we should be able to understand that kind of response from our non-Christian neighbors. I mean, after all, history is filled with many examples of people claiming to have the truth, whether it be religious or political or whatever, but who then do horrible things to those who think they are wrong. And so as Christians, we should should be able to understand somewhat of that concern that non-Christians have. But nonetheless, there are these kind of arguments out there that can make it intimidating to speak about Jesus. And yet this is our message. And if we don't speak this message, then we're no longer speaking the Christian message. And if we don't say that Jesus is the only way, then we're no longer talking about the same Jesus. And so, friends, we're going to have to be bold. It's a controversial message. It was controversial then. It's controversial today. All religions are not the same. They don't all lead to the same place. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's been our message for the last 20 years as a church. And it's going to take boldness to continue to proclaim that message for another 20 years. So how do we do that? I mean, especially in a city like this, how, how are we going to be able to do that? This is a, it's a very pluralistic city that we live in. There's different beliefs of all kinds, different religions of all kinds, uh, different understandings of salvation. Uh, many people don't even think you need to be saved of anything. But how in the world are we going to do this? Well, again, let's see what we can learn here. How was the early church able to be so bold in proclaiming this message? Uh, Well, just very briefly, a a few things to notice. Uh, Negatively, uh, we can notice what it wasn't that enabled them to speak this message so boldly. Uh, It wasn't because they were extra sophisticated and smart. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men... They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Okay, so it wasn't because Peter and John were clever enough to win an argument with the religious leaders, and that's why they were so clear and confident in their message. No, the thrust here is that these are, these are just those hillbilly men who are hanging around with Jesus. These are, these are common, uneducated folks. And so if it's not about being clever and sophisticated, Well, what is it then? How was it that they were able to stand up so boldly for the truth of the gospel? Well, one reason is because their own lives have been genuinely transformed by that very message. These may have been common, uneducated men, but they were men who had been with Jesus. And so these were men who knew the Lord. They enjoyed fellowship with him. They they had spent time with him. And thus, in one sense, they, they couldn't help but speak. Now, look at verse 18. So the religious leaders called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
I love that. Uh, They couldn't help it. Uh, Their lives had been so changed that they couldn't help but speak about these things of the gospel. Uh, God had so loved them. He had forgiven them. He had changed them. How could they not speak about these things, you see? I mean, that's just the way the human heart works. Right? If there's something you love, if there's something beautiful that you're enamored by, if there's something that's very important that has happened to you, you can't help but speak. That's Peter and John here. They'd seen the beauty of God in Jesus, and Jesus and it had changed them, and so they couldn't do anything but speak of it with boldness, even in the midst of a hostile situation. And Christian friends, the same should be true of us. Uh, one of the greatest arguments, I think, against the unbiblical notion that evangelism is only for the professionals is that a heart and life that's been truly impacted by God can't help but speak. That's just the way the human heart works. We don't keep beautiful, wonderful things to ourselves. So they spoke because they've been transformed personally. They'd been with Jesus. Uh, they were also able to speak the message about Jesus with such boldness Because secondly, they had a robust biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. This is what we see after Peter and John were released. Uh, They go to their friends and they, they all begin praying together. And the way that they pray reflects their clear belief that God is sovereign and in control of the situation, no matter how hostile and intimidating it may be. Now look at verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a a quote from Psalm 2. And they they rightly see the events of Jesus' life in light of Psalm 2 and the the sovereignty of God. That even as people try to to thwart God, uh, God's plan, that actually God is in control of it all. And he's using their very actions of trying to thwart his plan to achieve his plan. They go on, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's quite explicit. All of this is happening according to God's plan. God is the sovereign Lord. He's the creator of heaven and earth. It all belongs to him. He's in charge of it all. And they're made bold by that knowledge of God's sovereign plan. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you should take strength from the fact that even in the midst of the most intimidating and hostile situations, uh, God is still in control of that situation. And then not only that, uh, but it's also clear from this passage that one of the reasons they were so bold in their proclamation is because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, the very reason why Peter speaks is because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then at the end when they pray, they, they ask Uh, very specifically, that God would give them this boldness. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
Isn't that an amazing request? Uh, the, the request isn't, Lord, take the threats away. Uh, the request is, Lord, in the midst of the threats, help us to continue to speak with boldness. And then God answers that prayer, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the early church father, John Chrysostom, made the observation about this verse that the whole place was shaken, and that left them all the more unshaken. In other words, even in the, the face of great threats, the presence of God was powerfully felt as the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and it made them all the more bold. And so the early church was able to speak with boldness uh, because one, after seeing the glory of Jesus, they couldn't help it. Uh, two, they also knew God was sovereign and in control. And three, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in answer to their prayer for boldness. And again, I want to submit to you, it's no different for us. Uh, to speak boldly about Jesus, it's not easy. We need to be emboldened in these ways. In fact, as the, as the book of Acts unfolds, this is what you see continue to take place time and time again. It's a, it's a ministry of proclamation that boldly shares the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. Uh, for example, uh, Acts chapter 5, the Lord specifically instructs Peter to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, and that's what Peter and others did. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Chapter 6, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, persecution comes to the church. Uh, many have to flee Jerusalem. And what do they do when they flee? Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Chapter 9, Paul's converted. And what does he immediately do? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Chapter 12, the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 13, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And we could go on and on with examples through the book of Acts. When you read through the book of Acts, just look how often uh, uh, proclamation happens, preaching happens, speaking happens, the word of God is mentioned, the word of God is multiplying and growing and increasing over and over again in the book of Acts. Why? Because that's how the early church was founded. That was the mission of the early church. And it's been the mission of Christians throughout history. And again, it's the mission that founded this church. And friends, it will be the mission that we carry on into the future. It is a mission of proclamation. So I wanted to do something just a little bit different this morning. Uh, this, this morning is a, a morning of new things for us as a church. Uh, I wanted to, um, uh, in speaking with the elders back in December, I wanted to... Uh, I thought it'd be great to hear a few testimonies of those who've been at Christ Church far longer than I have. I haven't been here actually uh, all that long in the history of the church, just a little over half of its existence. Uh, but some of you have been here way longer than I have. I thought it'd be wonderful uh, in consultation with the elders to, to hear some testimonies about those who have seen the word of God at work in this church 
over two decades. So I asked uh, our elder Mark Hastings and Maria Capucciati, both of whom have been here uh, way longer than I have, if they would share a little bit, just a, a few minutes of, a, of their experience with the word of God being proclaimed as the mission of this church. So Mark, why don't you come share with us for a few moments and then Maria, if you'll follow Mark. Okay, thanks uh, Keith. Um, so my family and I have actually been part of Christ Church from the very beginning, and in some sense, even before the very beginning. We first met John Mason, the founding minister of the church, back in early 2001, shortly after he arrived in New York from Sydney, Australia. We had been alerted by some friends in Sydney that a minister was coming to New York to begin some kind of ministry, and so I let him settle in for a bit, and then I called him and introduced myself. And over many conversations, over many a meal, it was clear that he had great vision and dreams for ministry in New York. And his particular desire was to focus on teaching the scriptures, which I was really keen on myself. And he did that. He began midweek meetings, and then really any place and time he could gain a hearing, he taught. That was in private clubs, in restaurants, in people's apartments. And I was there for a lot of that. And it was great to hear the scriptures taught. And over time, this uh, work moved into an effort at church planting, and this church and Emmanuel Anglican downtown are the fruits of those early labors. Now, the early years were uh, a challenge uh, for us in many ways. They were a challenge financially. It was also a challenge to find a regular, consistent place to meet. We met in many different places. We kept getting kicked out. We didn't get a lease renewed. One Sunday, I recall, we had no place to meet, and so we met outdoors in Union Square Park for an outdoor service on a blustery day. Uh, but the focus always was on what does the Bible have to say? What do the scriptures teach? What can we believe God for? Uh, and this uh, was true whether our questions and issues were about music or staff or money or children or the role of women or sexual ethics, you name it. We always went back to the Bible and it was always a matter of what did the Bible teach, what does the Bible have to say. We always prayed and sought the Lord's guidance on all of these kinds of things. And then after a few years and some staff changes and growth, we needed to hire an assistant minister. And we were looking for a man who met the biblical qualifications of an elder, but also one who was committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. We formed a pastoral search committee. I was on that. And that's when we hired Keith. And I think that was maybe 12 years ago now, something like that. So for my family, myself, Delilah, and our three kids, uh, the constant focus on God's word, on what God has to say, has been a real blessing. You know, if nothing else, we all live in uh, distracting times, and we hear many voices. And this church always brings us back week by week to that which is solid and deep and real. It keeps us in the word, it keeps us focused on Christ, and that's been good for my wife and I, and good for our three kids, all of whom are grown and gone, but all of whom are in the word regularly and attend uh, similar churches uh, where the word is preached and the scriptures are taught and Jesus is proclaimed. So it's been great. It's great to celebrate 20 years, and I do hope and pray that the next 20 years will also be faithful and fruitful years for all of us and for all who join us along the way. Thank you. Hi. So if you don't know me, I'm Maria Capucciati, and somehow I've managed to become one of the old timers here at Christ Church, completely unintentional. I started coming in 2004, 2005, uh, when John Mason was our pastor, and we were then meeting at the Union League Club on Park and 37th. 
I'm a native New Yorker, but at that time I had just moved back to New York from 11 years in Northern California, where I attended a wonderful, solid gospel preaching church. My initial forays into looking for a church in New York were not very successful. There are three things that are important to me in a church. First and foremost, the sound teaching of God's word. Second, the fellowship of the believers. And third, the quality of the music. As many of you know, I live in Eastern Queens, and I really tried to find a church close to where I live, but that proved to be a very tough task. So I expanded my church search to Manhattan. I tried several well-known churches, but I didn't really find one that met all three of my important qualifications. I don't recall exactly how I found Christ Church. John asked me that question more than once, and honestly, I think it was in the yellow pages. But what I found when I started attending was a church committed to all three things, the word, fellowship, and good music, but above all, the word. I found that the gospel was proclaimed at Christ Church not only on Sundays at the service, but also during the week in small groups and in the outreach ministries. I regularly attended a small group, and that proved to be my saving grace when, for a time, I was caring for my mother and unable to come to church on weekends. That small group during the week became my church. In outreach, John held weekly Bible studies in Midtown and Downtown called the Wall Street Ministry, and I was able to attend and even invite my colleagues to it. I always found John's focus to be steady and consistent in preaching the gospel, and when Keith arrived, Though his teaching style was different than John's, I found him to be no less dedicated and committed to sound teaching. We've been truly blessed in our leadership. If any of you have ever relocated and been on a church hunt, I don't need to tell you how challenging it can be. While recognizing that there are solid teaching churches everywhere, it's also pretty easy to find many churches where the Sunday sermon content boils down to how to be a better person with a few scriptures thrown in. I'm incredibly grateful that this is not Christ Church. We are consistently challenged to growth in our Christian lives. Even if I disagree with what's being said, it only drives me to dig deeper into the word, meditation, and prayer. While none of us will be here forever, I do hope and pray that no matter what the leadership or the membership, it remains a church that's unafraid to preach the truth in an ever-changing and increasingly polarized world. New Yorkers desperately need a shining light, and I pray that this church might continue to be one of many such lights in this city. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mark. Uh, friends, we have much to give thanks for here as a church. Uh, his word is powerful. Uh, and when we open it up, he is at work. Uh, so again, that, that's, that's the history of our church. That's the, the founding of this church. It's built on a, a, a ministry and a mission of proclamation. And again, we don't want it just to be our past. We want it to be our future. This is what we want to move into, a, a mission of proclamation. Come back to that statement, that method uh, that we have as a church. Uh, it is to touch and transform lives through the plain message of God's word, the Bible, letting the word of God do the work of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. We want to get out of the way. We want to let God's Word do the work. Uh, that's what we mean by being a Bible-driven church. So to bring this sermon to a close uh, this morning, not quite 53 hours long, let's come back to Acts chapter 4. 
Uh, And as we close, thinking about this mission of proclamation that's been so foundational to our church, uh, listen, we we have the most beautiful, wonderful message to proclaim that there is. Now, verse 12 here, right, for all its exclusivity, is actually a remarkable message of grace. Think about it. If there's salvation in no one else, uh, if there's no other name, if there's no other way by which we must be saved but Jesus alone, then what that does, you see, is it levels the playing field, right? Because it means that there's not something about me that makes me better than you. Uh, I'm not a Christian because I'm, I'm, I'm extra smart or I'm extra good or because I, I work really hard. In fact, I, I, I haven't earned it and I don't deserve salvation. Salvation does not come by any other means than Jesus Christ. And so, yes, this can be a difficult message to share in our very pluralistic city because, yes, it's exclusive. But let's not forget that the first century into which Christianity was born was no less pluralistic. And yet the early Christians, having been genuinely transformed by this message and trusting the sovereignty of God and being filled with the Holy Spirit, faithfully and boldly proclaimed this message. And note that they also did it with love and humility. Uh, You you could work through here and just notice the contrast between the disciples and the religious leaders. It's, It's actually very striking. In contrast, the disciples, they are clear, they're respectful, they're direct, but they're respectful and they're humble. And the reason is because they've been shaped by the very message that they're proclaiming. They knew they had nothing to boast about to the unbelievers around them. All they had was this simple, wonderful message of God's saving grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So friends, let's not get distracted by other messages. Uh, Let's not be ashamed to proclaim this message. Uh, Let's continue to let the Word of God do the work of God by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we do pray that you would fill us with boldness to continue to speak this message as we move forward. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you move among us? Would you make us bold? Would you take all fear of man away? Would you give us a proper fear of God that we would fear him above all else? And would you make us bold? Uh, Lord, help us to trust your word, help us to trust uh, the promises that you have made about it, that it is powerful, that it does accomplish your purposes. Help us to trust those promises. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never really known the beauty of the gospel, and that you would take your word here today, Lord God, that you would implant it deep in their hearts, and that you would bring them to saving faith, and that you would bring new spiritual life, and that people would see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and be saved for all eternity. Uh, Please do this powerful work, Lord, among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.